Hello, and you are really welcome to another episode of the Holistic Business Podcast for personal trainers and fit pros. And I am beyond excited to share today's podcast conversation with you with world industry leader, Jonathan Goodman. And Jonathan is renowned for his books, um, being a speaker, and his absolutely amazing content on social media, helping out personal trainers. And in this episode, we have a deep dive in how he got to where he is by not following the social media rules and other typical marketing rules and tactics um, to create a really, really sizable audience and a profitable business by throwing out the rule book really out the window and doing it his way. So grab a cuppa, enjoy, and see you on the other side. So much for, for coming on, Jonathan, Jonathan Goodman, who is the man of the hour, is how I would <laughs> describe Jonathan at the moment. And I'm, I'm going to do a separate intro to this anyway, but welcome, Jonathan, to the show. And for those who aren't aware of what Quick Coach is, how would you describe your baby, Quick Coach, and and what it is for any fit pros. I'm trying to think mind. which baby of mine this is. <laughs> <laughs> quick coach, quick coach is free professional software for people who work in the fitness and health industry to build and deliver programs to clients. So it could be fitness programs, could be nutrition programs, could be habit programs. We have trainers, we have running coaches, we have physios. Um, all using it. Basically, any time you're building a program, could be a workout program, right? Could be anything. Um, and needing to build it in a really quick, efficient way and deliver it in a slick and professional way to a client. Quick Coach is there for you. And it's 100% free to use. So it's, uh, yeah, quickcoach.fit is the domain. Yeah. And so I have yet to come across somebody in the fitness industry who's gone this far of giving away something so valuable for free that could well be you know, like a, a pain program or, or software. And could I ask you about the thinking um, and system like behind that of, of, of why it's free? Yeah, well, it's actually funny because today we're pushing out a paid level to it. Yeah. Um, so it's, which is actually quite sooner than I anticipated. I always knew that there'd be a paid version to it um, and it happened quicker just because the thing grew way quicker than I anticipated it was going to grow. Mm -hmm. But um, but I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll take you back a step, Sarah. So I. I wrote the only textbook for online fitness and I've been helping trainers build online fitness businesses since 2013. Um, we were, I was basically the first person to do it on a large scale. I built the first curriculum for it, all that kind of stuff. And so we've helped over 65,000 trainers build online businesses through education. Yeah. And what I have seen have been frustrated with over the years is just how little action is actually taken. Oh um, yeah. And I don't blame them. I mean, doing stuff that is unnatural to us really sucks. It's hard. It's something that we fight against. It's something I fight against. Fitness people are really good at fitness, want to do fitness stuff, um, don't necessarily want to do business stuff. Some do, but a lot of them don't. And one of the big things that frustrated me was these trainers who often did not have a lot of time and financial resources, the first thing that they would do when they decided that they wanted to take control of their businesses, build more freedom, maybe online, maybe in person, doesn't really matter. Most trainers are actually a hybrid of the two. The yeah. first thing that they did was they go and sign up for the software and pay like $50, $100 a month. These are people with three, five, even 10 clients that are making like less than $1,000 a month are now spending $100 a month on the software 
that often is just so overblown for what they need, or they don't even really know how to use it because yeah. it, it's, it, it's kind of an act of um, productive procrastination. You feel like you're moving forward by signing up for this software suite and setting it up was what you should really do is like putting in the work to know yourself and build your vision and, and, and set yourself apart and getting clients. And so I've tried to educate around this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then I just got so goddamn frustrated that I said, screw it. I'm just going to build the software so I can control yeah. the experience and try to give trainers what they really needed, which is the belief in themselves that they belong. Because yeah. what I have found, what I believe is that knowing what to do is very rarely actually the issue when it comes to like growing your business and getting more clients and doing better with clients. Knowing what to do is very rarely the problem. It's it's this imposter syndrome. Yeah. That's the problem. It's it's the who am I to do this when that person is so much better than me? It's um, oh, you know, am I doing this right? Are, are they going to think that I'm not professional or stupid or add whatever you want? Here, yeah. who's they? I don't know. They just call it they. Like I'm still they trying to learn who they is. Yeah. It's whoever it is, right? And and I mean, look, this is just part of the human condition. We always fear things we don't understand. There's a lot of things in the world that we don't understand, so we always fear. And and so what I decided to do was build the software tool that is simpler, that is easier to use, that is professional, that's simple for you to use, that's professional and slick for your clients, and let trainers use it for free. So that you have that belief that you belong, you know that you're being professional in how you deliver your stuff to your clients. So that you now gain the permission to actually put yourself out there and present yourself yes. in a way. And um, and so you asked about like financially why I do it. I mean, I'll tell you really quick, the math actually makes a lot of sense if you break down the math. So I've spent about half a million dollars building it. Okay. Which, you know, you think it, it sounds like a big bet, maybe to some people, maybe to other people, it doesn't sound like a lot of money. But what you have to understand is that with business goal lines change. And so risk profiles change. Mm -hmm. When I started my website in 2011, $1,500 for a website was like this ungodly massive amount of money. It was a scary as hell thing, right? But as I did more things and had some successes, had some hits, had some misses, right? Got kicked in the teeth and won and whatever. And by the way, you're going to miss way more times than you win. Yes. Um, that's just how business works. Well, that risk profile changed. And so now I can bet half a million dollars. And if it doesn't work, then I'm pissed and it sucks, but it's not going to take me out. But we would have spent that in advertising and marketing costs easily <laughs> this last year to acquire customers. And we would have spent that doing what kind of everybody else does in a way that I don't believe really adds a lot of value these days, which is send a whole bunch of ads on social media, just like basically pain zucks, pain, yeah. you know, the Google machine, Working like Google. for leads, like they don't need any more money first off. Like, I don't yeah. want to give it to them if I don't have to, we would have paid them to get people to go and maybe sign up for like an ebook or a challenge or whatever it is to get them into a um, funnel so we could nurture them and build a relationship with them through email, which by the way, email deliverability is down. So like 
Mm. Now they're not even getting our messages sometimes so that maybe one day we could hope to sell them something that might be able to help them. And we're going to pay 20, 30, even $40 a lead for that. Mm. Well, Quick Coach has close to 20,000 users. I don't know when this is going to go live, but we'll probably be at 20,000 users. It'll be there within a day or two. And, and so, you know, if you even just do like the basic math, which I'm not going to do because I don't do public math, but half a million dollars, you know, 500,000 divided by 20,000, you're talking like 25 to $30 a lead. It's actually a better lead cost. You now have people that are going to access Quick Coach every single day, which means I've now bought multiple impressions yes. for that $25. These people are getting tremendous value from what I'm doing versus an ebook that they're not going to read. Yeah. And then there's lots of other benefits. Um, so, as a pure marketing tool. Mm -hmm. Could I ask you deeper about it, when you mentioned imposter syndrome and that coming up for personal trainers? Mm -hmm. For you, you the, re the reason I love your work so much is because you're such a renegade, such a rebel. You, you're a visionary, really. Am I, though? Like yes, why? You are. Like everybody yes, you are. says this, but like, dude, you're bold. You're doing like, what? What am I doing? Like, I don't know. It just, it like, like somebody. One of my friends said this to me. Um, Dr. John Brody, if you know him from Precision mm -hmm. Nutrition, yeah. we sat down to dinner, and then he sent me a message afterwards. He goes, you know, I think you're the first person to ever out bold me. And this that. was in relation to like a couple of hires that I made that I basically hired them away. And I was just like, what? Like. It just doesn't. So why? Like what? Like because, what am I doing? This is my question for you. Like okay, I'll ask you a question. Talking about <laughs> shit that happens because <laughs> the noise that the noise that's going on that's so loud and that that is on social media and in the news to a degree in every media is you need to be doing reels. You need to be doing TikToks. And I listened to your podcast where you said. I've just done this ad lib. I bought all this expensive equipment. Don't know how to fucking use it. And I'm doing this quick time player. And then you proceeded to talk about writing your book where you said, I don't know how to write a book. I don't know how to edit a book. I don't, I don't, you know, and you looked at Google and you took the next step. So you are a rebel and a leader because nobody can, it's very hard to ignore social media rules. Yet you have gone against the grain and been more successful than so many gurus out there teaching. So, and Instagram itself said, this is no longer a photo platform, it's video, yet your whole vibe is like uh, TikTok, uh, sorry, um, Twitter uh, written post, right. yeah, and some videos. So to me, yes. There's, there, there's almost no videos. Well, so it, I don't know, there's so many things I wanna break down there. Um, number one is just a matter of like, what are you good at? What are you not good at? If you're good at something, you're gonna do a better job. If you're not good at something, you can do a shit job. I'm really good at writing. I'm not good at video. So I'm gonna do, I'm gonna write and not do video for no other reason than I'm gonna do writing well. I'm gonna do shit at video when people are gonna do video better than me. Um, that's just like, like everything works to a degree, whether something objectively works better than something else. What actually matters is how much I'm going to work at that and how good of a job that I'm going to do at that thing. Yes. And so I'm always going to do a better job writing. That having been said, I do think that there are advantages to video and platforms. You have to understand um, the feed nature or, or the discovery nature of every platform. And so Instagram is kind of interesting because it's a hybrid, right? It's a feed-based platform. You follow people and you see what they see in your feed. But it's also a discovery-based platform with the Explore page. Mm -hmm. TikTok, on the other side, is almost exclusively a discovery-based platform. And so how you create content is very, very different. 
So we're coming out with our podcast now, um, The Goodman Show. And what we're doing to promote the podcast is uh, every podcast episode, I'm pulling out um, eight to 10 clips from that episode that are 60 seconds or less. Those clips are then going to a video team who's editing them and they're putting them on a separate Instagram account. Mm -hmm. And we're putting like, we're going to be putting like four or five clips a day on that Instagram account. Now I can't do that on my main feed one. So I'm basically saying there is this Instagram account, which is called Goodman Show Clips, Mm -hmm. which has all of the reels and its only job is to promote the podcast. Got it. So it's saying that account is optimizing the discovery nature of Instagram. Mm -hmm. TikTok's the same thing because it's pure discovery, right? My personal account, it's Coach Goodman, is optimizing what I do best, which is the writing. An account needs to be extensively about one thing. Mm -hmm. And the best accounts ostensibly use and leverage one type of content for two reasons, I think. One is if you do one type of content over and over and over again, you're just going to get better at that type of content. And the type of people who like that type of content are going to find it. The other has to do with Instagram though. Instagram is constantly trying to feed people in the explorer, in the search, whatever it is, stuff that they like. Instagram needs to know what type of material your content produces. If you bounce back between different content types, i.e. sometimes writing, sometimes video, sometimes this model, sometimes that model. The system has no way of ever figuring out what your account is. Mm -hmm. As a result, it can never show that to to somebody else. Yes. But at what point did you, at what point did you really give a big F you to social media and Instagram when they're putting out all these updates and saying, this is never going to work if you don't do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, no, I'm going to make it work. I'm doing it my way. That, that is leadership. So here's, yeah. So here's, here's the thing. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I wrote a book called Vironomics that came out in 2016. And um, at that point, when I wrote that book, I had read every research paper that existed on social media contagion theory, on computer-mediated communication, on digital networks. I read up on um, cognitive dissonance. I read up on narcissism. All of these themes that are prevalent now. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a book about it that was the number one marketing book in the world for some time. And it was called Vironomics. It's still called Vironomics. And... In that book, the entire argument is buttons change, humans don't. If you understand why humans use and connect with social networks, figuring out how the social network works is really easy. There's no secrets there. What you need to understand, the missing element is, why are people using these things? Why are people abusing their mental health? Mm. Why are people addicting themselves to these platforms, making their lives miserable, making themselves less present with the people they love, ignoring their real life communities, ignoring the world that exists within their fence, their community, their house, their family, so that they can try to impress people they don't know and don't give a shit about. Why are we doing these things, right? 
if you understand that, and that's what that book is about, I can talk to you about that if you want, but if you understand that, it's irrelevant what the platform is because the platforms are always going to change, mm-hmm. right? MySpace to, to Periscope, to Snapchat, to Clubhouse, to Facebook Lives, to not Facebook, to uh, TikTok, to what was the other, uh, the, the preceding one to TikTok. I can't even remember what it is. This shit comes and goes every two years. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it when you're in it. Yeah, yeah. But it's always going to come and go. What does not change are why the humans using it are using it. And I have a love-hate relationship because I think for the most part, social media is a deep, dark pit of despair. Yes. I don't want to go anywhere near it. One of, the, one of my major issues is that I have a really hard time creating content for a lot of other social media platforms because I refuse to consume it. Oh, like, I guess I'm like that with TikTok. I just won't go on TikTok. I, I know I should, but I just can't. I just <laughs> I refuse to consume it. And so how do how can I possibly how can I possibly pretend that I'll be able to create content better than somebody who grew up with TikTok who's on it all day, every single day? Mm-hmm. How can I possibly pretend to use that better than them? I I can't. I mean, there's just no way. They're just they're mm-hmm. they're gonna kick my butt at it. Um, so there is a TikTok account in my name, my team posts to it. I've never downloaded it or logged in. I've only seen it once because an old media manager of mine was like, hey, you're going viral on TikTok. I'm like, oh, really? She's like, yeah, this video. I'm like, that's a stupid video. And, and But like, that was the one that went viral, right? Um, and so all of this to say, um, it, I think you need to be very, very careful with social media. I think also... Um, you need to figure out where you fit in and like be okay with that. But more than anything else, if you understand, if you understand that the main reason why anybody uses social media is an act is they use it as an act of selective self-representation. Mm-hmm. They use it because they want to feel like they appear a certain way to people that they don't know that exist in a community that they exist within. We're all trying, we're all basically in high school trying to climb the social ladder. We're all trying to improve our perceived social status within a community that we exist within. Mm-hmm. Now, I say perceived, and that's a really interesting nuance because Sarah, it's, it's completely irrelevant how smart you think that I am to my self-worth. Mm-hmm. What matters to my self-worth is how smart I think that you think that I am. Mm-hmm. Whether you actually think I'm smart doesn't matter. What matters is whether I think that you think that I'm smart. So perception, yeah. And so what people do when they share material online is they, th- they share things because they feel like it makes them appear, I call it the triple IAF drug, intelligent, interesting, intellectual, attractive, or funny. If you can create content that makes somebody else feel like they appear one of those ways by sharing your content as an articulation of their own thoughts, Mm -hmm. your content's gonna fly. Now, if you can do that very specifically towards an ideal network, because you understand that industry or that network or those people, what do, in my example, what do personal trainers or fitness enthusiasts, what do they wish other people know about them that they think other people don't get. 
all you got to do is just say that mm -hmm. and it will fly. And you certainly do that because when I found your page first, I actually nearly cried. And that's the truth because I was 22 years a personal trainer and you put into words, very few words and summed up even client experiences similar enough that I could relate to that. I just felt so seen and so heard and so understood. I just kept coming back for more. And then so many of my followers and clients were sharing your stuff every day. And Andrew's, Andrew Coates, who had a similar message about yeah. um, status. And that's where I suppose some fit pros who might, who might be on a path a bit behind you will blame the externals and imposter syndrome and be so petrified to make any bold moves on social media for fear that it just won't work or no shouldn't gonna, too. You know? And yeah. you also like there's this misconception that you use social media to enable you the ability to do shit. Um, the reality of it is you gotta do shit first. And then you use social media to talk about the shit that you do. Like, like social media is a tool, put, put it this way. You got to do dope shit and talk about it in a dope way. Like you don't, like you can't talk about stuff on social media. If you've never done anything worth noting, you can't make notable content if you've never done anything that's notable. And so you kind of have to like do stuff in real life first. Yeah. Um, and there are, outliers of this but fewer than you think if you if you consider people that you actually respect not just like entertainers who like make funny videos because the reality of it is entertainers who make funny videos have no real value the only thing that they can sell is advertisements and low-cost stuff on fear and emotion yes and and they're they're, they're one and gone they're not going to be around for a long time mm -hmm. Some of them might become like celebrities and go and do acting and stuff like that, but they're like tiny outliers, right? Like, like if you're going to try to understand something in a way that you might be able to make use of it, you can't look at the outliers. You have to look at repeatable successes and, and pull out any foundational principles of that. And if you look at that, people who create content, let's say, and you look at them and you actually respect them often in almost every case it's because they've actually done something notable yes. for a long time in the real world first and that reflects in their content and also when you start to go deeper with them you're like yo there's something else there there's something deeper there so i mean i can tell you if you want you can tell me where you want to take this conversation but i can tell you like what i think the four stages of content production should be Yes, I'd love you to elaborate on that because I have saved that post and read it so many times about the, you know, the, the three that you, you have on, on, it, on Instagram, what an amazing, valuable post that you do. I'd love you to break that down. Yeah. So, okay. So I think, I think there's four stages to, to content production. There's, there's for yourself, for your clients, for your industry, and then for the world. So stage one for yourself, stage two for your, for your clients, stage three for your industry, stage four for the world. When you are starting anything you're doing, right? This fitness is anything. When you're starting, the best way to learn is to teach. Mm -hmm. And so as you're studying, as you're learning, I believe it's very, very important to actually build um, a blog or a social media account or something. And you cannot care if anybody else sees it. The only reason you have it is because you will learn exponentially faster if you force yourself to turn around and teach that material to others. Now, those others don't need to be there. So I had a blog when I was a beginning personal trainer called championlifestyle.blogspot.com. 
and it was horrible. <laughs> but I wrote articles about stuff I was learning. I'd be reading all the books on periodization, on whatever, right? And I'd write articles on that. I had one comment in three years. It was from my mom. Right? Nobody read it. Love it. And, and I was probably pissed off at the time that nobody was reading it, right? But, but looking back, that was an important part. Right? And then because now you're learning faster and better, and you're also learning in a way that you can communicate what you're learning to other people, mm-hmm. um, you, you will start to do a better job with your clients, with your customers. And then stage two is you start creating content for your clients. Because at this point, you have nothing unique to say and you don't have a unique way to say it because you haven't done any dope shit yet. Mm -hmm. But there are people who you're working with that will be happy getting the same message they can get anywhere else from you. Mm -hmm. So now's when you start to write. So I started then a blog, jonathangoodman.ca where I gave an award to my clients every month. And then I wrote a profile about my client. I called it the half badge, the hardest fuck badge. Genius. And I, and I gave it to one client every month and I wrote about them. But then every time that a client would ask me a question, I'd write the answer to that question as a blog post and I'd send it to all my clients. And it was for my clients. But some of those articles started to go viral. Because they were questions other people were asking, like, like, does fruit make me fat? Yeah. And so I wrote an article about that. And they started to go viral. Because my clients would send them to other people and other people and other people and stuff like that. And so, um, so step number two was you write for your clients. Mm-hmm. Right? That'll make you more successful with your clients as you do a better job there. Um, very, very cool. Your clients might send it around. Now, you have to understand that publishers that people in charge of information networks, whether it's like traditional gatekeepers or whether it's just like influencers who have more, their entire job is finding good people coming up in the game. Uh Like, like, Like that's what they want to find. So because these articles started to get notable, I started getting featured. So Men's Health included me in a couple of their books. Um, I started writing for Schwarzenegger's blog. Livestrong called me one of the, whatever it was, 24 best trainers you've never heard of, which was funny because nobody had ever seen me train a client. Whole nother conversation of why there's so much bullshit out there. But all of this stuff started to happen where um, I was writing for my clients and then my industry started to take notice. Mm-hmm. Step three now is I started building now for my industry. So that's when I started the Personal Trainer Development Center blog. So I started writing for other trainers because at this point I had had success with my clients. I had had a success locally. Other trainers started asking me about it. So I started writing about what I was doing with my clients and um, started blog and then started to host summits. And so I hosted like little summits at the club that I worked at. And I invited some of my friends who were other people like me from outside of town to come speak. And we do it. We did, I think I did five of them. Um, in the in the group exercise room, oh, cool. yes, and uh, and we'd have you know a hundred people come out, people who were starting to be a part of this network, and I got them filmed and I turned them into a, a a DVD that we sold and whatever it was, and now I'm starting to build networks in my industry and I'm starting and so then I started to figure out the problems my industry had and started to build businesses to solve the problems for my industry. Step three. 
Now I'm finally in step four. I'm 17 years into my career at this point. Mm-hmm. Very important note. 17 years into my industry, I think now finally, I have. I am just bridging into the point where I've done enough that I think people who I don't know might be interested in learning about it. 17 years in. Because at that point in step three, I'm building businesses, I'm trying out different things, I'm having some successes, I'm having some losses, whatever it is. And now I'm in step four. And now I'm writing about it. Now I'm publishing about it. Right Now I'm trying to grant, grow a brand in the world. Um, this is a stepwise process. Yes. The reason why nobody's listening to you if you're new to the industry is because there's no reason for them to. Because you don't have any unique experiences yet. And that might sound harsh, but it's true. It's true. And so you've got to build that up as you go. And that doesn't mean you can't grow a business. You can grow a phenomenal business. Just don't try to impress the internet yet. Yeah, it's that social status that I was talking about with Andrew, isn't it? It's it's making an impact over the status. And what does that status bring you? You know, not much in terms of, you know, longevity. And I love how, how you are so transparent about your process. And that's what I love the most about how you wrote the book from the gym floor, taking notes, you know? Um, and, and that's literally how you how you did it, right? It was, and then you figured you out. You can always figure out the next step. Yeah. Yeah. But at what point, though, uh, did you just decide, declare and commit to that? And, and imposter syndrome, I saw on your Q&A yesterday, someone asked you about imposter syndrome and you were like, I don't I don't really entertain it. You know, were you always like that or was that something you developed? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess I'm uh, naturally I'm weird in that way. Um, I mean, for sure, like. I think anybody who doesn't feel like an imposter is actually the real imposter um, uh, for sure. But I was, I always like that. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to look back. I've done so much stuff now and had so many experiences now that um, so much has gone wrong that I realized that when something goes wrong, it's really not that big of a deal, but the only way to really become one with that, I mean, I call that courage, right? The only way to really grow that courage and become one with that is to have a bunch of shit go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and because when you do, you're like, well, that wasn't so bad. Like that sucked for a little bit, but like, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And then it gives you a lot more courage to try new stuff in the future because you're like, well, I mean, who cares? Like that was fun. And so I think that, but going back before any of that happened, I don't think, I don't think it was ever that much of an issue. I mean, the first ever speaking gig that I gave was to 500 people. And I don't remember ever being nervous. I just walked out. I mean, I was just talking to people. So I get that that's weird. Um, and I don't know why. And the same kind of thing online. It's like, I don't think it's necessarily weird. I, I actually just think it's another way to deal with it and to process it is just like, I'm fucking doing this and I'm not even going to like entertain the fact that imposter syndrome is there. Like sometimes in this new age thinking yeah. or positive talks, people are overdoing it, you know, with some stuff where they just need to actually go and get into the arena um, to like, <laughs> Do it. I mean, you know, I think I think part of my advantage too is I came up in the game at a time when social media wasn't as prevalent. Yeah, I, it, it, so we live in this world today where a conversation that would otherwise be had around a dinner table with like three assholes <laughs> that you would never know about, you know, they now blast you on the internet and then 
three other assholes who are at a different dinner table and so on and so on. I'll see it and then I'll collect. And you're like supposed to care about what these people say. Whereas these conversations were probably always happening beforehand. You just never saw them because they were like siloed over here. Like now, just because they can send a message to you that you might see, like you're supposed to care about it. Yeah. It, it seems like a very weird world to me. Um, I think you need to protect your inputs a lot as a result. I mean, every time that somebody says something stupid to me, it's some dumb anonymous account. Like it's just, it's just, and, and it's, I mean, I don't know who these people are. If I meet them in real life, I look forward to having a conversation with them, but I don't have time to think about what they no. say on the internet. No. I used to think that being brought up not online, you know, not on the internet was a disadvantage to me when I went online, but now I realize it was an advantage because I learned so much on the, on the gym floor, in studios, working from a car, doing home calls, doing homemade posters and all that stuff. And as you said, having real conversations, you know, as opposed to it online. So I think it's also another thing that some fit pros who are older use to not go online is they're like, well, I wasn't brought up with the internet, you know, mm. uh, or social media, but neither were you and neither was I, and we've making it a success. So it's kind of, it's like, how do I get clients? I'm, I'm posting every day on Instagram. It's like, well, maybe Instagram isn't working for you. Well, how do I get clients then? It's like, you know, people have been getting customers for a long time before they could post a video of them demonstrating a squat poorly on the internet. Yes, and you know, I love what you said about advising about like you don't need a client in Thailand just because you can go online. You don't need, you know. I love when you you, you posted that the other day yeah. video clip because I think a lot of fit pros think that I should have people all over the world, and it's it's just it's just like totally unnecessary. Um, I had a question for you if it was all right about the economic times that we're in. Okay. And <laughs> don't, I, I don't ask me don't ask me about bitcoin Go no on. not about that but about relative to the industry is you, you put a screenshot in your stories earlier from a comment that said um from from the i love the genius thing you say about 300 20 clients you know blah, 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 this is how you how you make it and so this girl somebody said how the hell can i charge that yeah yeah right. and you'd said you'd mentioned obviously well you've got the perfect solution it's 300 there it is what would you say to, to fit pros who are, who are here right now and they're actually feeding into these scarcity tactics and saying, you know, what I'm going to do is actually lower my positioning by lowering my price and not charging my worth and all that because they're watching the news and they're hearing about all the bills rising and all that stuff. Like what do you think some of those are real valid fears within the industry yes. right now? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. But I also think that there are, so many people who can afford what you do that you 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 don't uh, let me let me take a back step um people who work in fitness are good people mm. almost too good to their detriment nobody works in nobody enters the fitness industry because they want to get rich it's not why we're here we're here because we want to make an impact we're here because we want to help people and that can be a detriment because in order to help people, you need to have a sustainable business. The way that our society is built is that you have to make a lot of money to have a big impact. That's how it works. The misconception people who work in fitness have is that, is that they often believe mistakenly that the they have to make the majority of their income from the people they ultimately want to serve. Mm -hmm. It's simply not true. 
if I wanted, if I wanted to improve dental hygiene in the developing world, and I thought that the solution was that they needed more toothbrushes, and I wanted to donate a whole bunch of toothbrushes, I don't need to start a toothbrush company to be able to donate toothbrushes. My best course of action would be to start any company that I possibly can that makes as much money as I can possibly make so that I can buy as many toothbrushes to donate to the developing world. In the fitness industry, it's the same. If you really want to help people, so Ben Mudge, he's out in the UK, has cystic fibrosis. Unfortunately, with people who are born with chronic illness, it's, it's just a bad financial situation. It's not fair, but that's the reality. A lot of people who have chronic illnesses, chronic diseases are put out financially by it and can't afford a lot of things. Certainly not like high cost fitness programs. Ben really wants to give back to his community. He's become a bit of a champion in the cystic fibrosis community. He looks like Thor. He's jacked. He's an impressive guy. And, and, and I like the guy a lot. And so we worked with him. We worked with him in my mentorship. And he was trying to build a low end, basically free or like pay what you can, like really, really cheap membership, fitness membership for people with cystic fibrosis. Oh, wow, struggling what a niche. It. It's, yeah, I mean, it's fine. But he, the problem is these people don't have a lot of money, like by definition, and he wanted to help them. And so what we did with him is we said, okay, well, you, you've built a big brand because you've overcome this, this, this really difficult thing and you've got a bunch of media attention and stuff like that. What you need to do is leverage that brand and build a really high cost transformation program and sell it to people who can afford it. And so that's what he did, not to cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. And as a result then, in 50% of his time, he made more than enough money by building a really profitable, really well-structured business. And in the other 50% of his time, he effectively donates it to content and materials for the cystic fibrosis community. There's another example of somebody else that we worked with, and he works with fighters. And fighters, the same type of thing, only like the top five or 10 in the world make any money, right? The majority of fighters have no money. They just they, they fight and maybe they win and get a post, but like, it's not much. So they can't pay a lot for their training. But there's a lot of people who really like fighting who do have a lot of money. And so what we did is we said, well, okay, you can build this program that's largely run by your staff and, and, and is low cost to run. And you can build this program at almost like a break even, even at a loss. Where, because he's built a brand in the fighter community where you're, where you're training all these fighters, right? And then you're going to build a super high cost train like a fighter program. And you're going to train these alpha types, corporate types, investment banker types who follow all these fighters and want to tell all their buddies that they're training with the same person who trains whatever this fighter's mm -hmm. name is. Yeah. And this person... $2,000, $3,000 a month is nothing because they're making half a million dollars a year at an investment bank. And so you use the people you want to serve in this fighter example as a way to build a brand, as a way to build an audience so that you can then build a profitable business. And so I tell you all of this because yes, the economic times are tough. I mean, it's like, yeah, holy crap, there's a lot of stuff that 
has been pretty nasty that's happened in the last <laughs> while. Um, but the reality of it is there's still a lot of people who have a lot of money. And the other part of it that I think is just important to note, Sarah, with this is that this is just like a weird piece of like human psychology is yeah. there's only one case where people don't spend money. And if it's the only time that people don't spend money is when they don't know how much money they have. People spend money if they know they have money. People spend money if they know they don't have money. Mm, yeah. The only time that people don't spend money is when they're unsure of how much money they have. That's cool. Fortunately, unfortunately, a lot of people in the world today have just accepted the fact that they don't have any money and, and they're, they're taking on debt and stuff like that. And like, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but like the economic system is going to collapse and like, <laughs> like this, it's going to happen. Like, it's just, it just can't not, there's going to be a big change. Um, but, and I don't know what that is, but, um, but there's a lot of people who are more than happy to spend a lot of money to solve their problems. And they may not be the exact type of person that you want to serve. Yes. But when you build a really well-structured company, you can then serve people who don't. I call it whales and minnows, free or expensive. The reason why I can spend the vast majority of my time creating content that I hope helps hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people a week the reason why I can build software that tens of thousands of trainers are working with hundreds of thousands of clients on and give it to trainers 100% for free to be able to allow them to deliver their services more professionally and show up better and help more people is because what I do sell is expensive. Yes, it's yes, yes. That. And when you sell things that are expensive, you allow yourself more resources to better serve these people to better offer them a better service, to get them better results. As a result, then, they're happier, they're more successful with your services, they're going to refer you more people, and the cycle continues. And you now have more resources to create free materials. Or if you want to volunteer, you now have more time and space to volunteer or whatever it is that mm -hmm. you want to do. It's you just got to think differently a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it goes back to that thinking differently. And I think you are like a case study in actually thinking differently and, and just stepping in, stepping into to power, really. It's, you know, that's, that's also what's needed is stepping into power. And, and I was going to ask you, you know, you started in fitness, you're training people in fitness, and now you're helping fit pros in business. Has your own training or your own fitness level taken a dive or do you do you create time for it? Is it a priority or is it like taking a bit of a back seat? Because I know that some fit pros, they, they either over, they, they either really dedicate themselves to their training and they, they kind of fuck up their business a bit by not focusing on it or they really focus on the business. And the next thing you know, they're burnt out for their clients. They're not serving them properly because they've like ignored their own exercise and health. So just interested yeah. in your own kind of practices or where you are with that. Yeah, that's a good question. I I love to train. I've always loved to train. I have never really been obsessive about it. I had a I had a rule for living. I, I made a big list of like rules for living well at one point. And one of them was get shredded, take pictures, and never do it again. Uh, so I did do that once. And I have those pictures. 
uh, I call it the day I reached grow status. And, uh, and I did a photo shoot in Hawaii. So that was funny. Wow. But, and so, but more than anything else for me, it's, it's a lot of it is experiential. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just fascinated by movement and by fitness. And so one of my favorite things is to hire other coaches. I've hired other trainers in I think six different countries now, uh, when I lived in, um, uh, and so I've lived in like 30 different places. So uh, when I lived in Costa Rica, I hired like a tack fit, like trainer in, in the jungle, um, to basically yes. train me on like tack fit, like parkour type, type training, stuff like that. When I, then I went to, um, in Mexico, I had a boxing coach in Greece. I had an endurance coach. Uh, then I moved to Montenegro, which is, um, basically broke off from Serbia. If you don't know it. So I lived in Montenegro for three months. And um, in Montenegro, I had a uh, basically like a um, barbell, like five by five type old Soviet coach. And so I'm like, and, and in Toronto, I had like a golden era, like physique coach. But, and so I'm just constantly experimenting and just, I just love trying these things because then it allows me to see so many different angles of the industry and what people go through and how the training feels. Like I feel confident in commenting on being shredded and what it's like and what it takes because I've done it and I know what goes into it. And, and I know as a result, it's not for me, but, um, and it's not me saying that it's not for other people, but to answer your question um, more specifically, sir, I have the way that I look at it is I have three competing priorities in my life. I have health and fitness, I have business and I have family. I have not figured out a way to optimize all three at the same time. Mm -hmm. When I say optimize, I mean actively trying to improve in that area. I find I can do two. Yes. But I can't do all three at the same time. And so what I do is I, I sort of split my year into two. I don't do it exactly, but I kind of split my year into two. I spend, I live in Toronto, Canada, but um, I, I spend three to five months in Mexico every year. Awesome. And so I use that as kind of like a flip because mm -hmm. Toronto is just cold in the winter. And so I use that to kind of just flip my ear. And so when I am in, um, when I'm in Toronto often, basically family is always optimized. I'm always trying to improve family. It's just too important. Family, community, like everything. But fitness and business, I will put one of them basically on, I wouldn't even call it the back burner, yeah. but like, it's okay to just, be okay with it. I don't need to have the pressure mm -hmm. to push forward on this thing right now. Mm -hmm. And then the other one I'm pushing forward. So it's kind of like a stepwise effect. So when I'm in Mexico, it's all fitness. Like, like I'm trying to push the envelope. I'm just like, like fitness is my priority. I'm really mm -hmm. trying to push it. And then when I'm home in Toronto, fitness is still important. So I'm still going to train three, four or five times a week. But it's not like I'm not trying to push it forward the same way mm -hmm. because our bodies and our business, I have found kind of work on this homeostasis where you get to this level of comfort and it's relatively easy when you're at that level to maintain it. It just, it's either natural now or it's easy to maintain it, but then to push past that, to improve that takes a tremendous amount of effort for smaller and smaller marginal gain often. But once you are able to push past that, which is often best done in a really intense short period, mm -hmm. you're now at a new level and that becomes your new normal. 
And so what I try to do with fitness and with business is, is I try to like push past it, get to a new level, push past it, get to, and almost go like stepwise mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, I wish that it was like a September 1st, I'm like this, it's not <laughs> quite that exact, but that's how I envision it because the worst thing in the world to me is feeling like I should be doing something else if I'm doing what I'm doing well. You know, like, like if I'm focusing on fitness, I'm feeling guilty that I'm not doing enough with business. If I'm focusing on business, I'm feeling guilty. I'm not doing enough with fitness, knowing that there's a time and place to push both forward allows me to be okay with what I'm doing in the moment. Wow. That's really powerful. That's summed up like about a year of angst that I had when I it's hard. stepped down. I was just like, you loser, Sarah. I went from being like an elite kettlebell athlete. And, and then a power lifter to like no I've got a right copy I, I, and I'm focusing on the business so I really appreciate that answer and also I was really intrigued about your answer for a question that was on a Q&A that asked you about your schedule and I'd just been reading about creating space to create really powerful work oh, right. and, solitude, and you were like <laughs> I don't have a fucking schedule and I was like what I was actually quite shocked and you said you, you get loads from just staring into space and then I started reading more about it and I'm like yeah that makes total sense. Um, can you tell me more about your schedule <laughs> or non-schedule? Yeah, I mean, I'll show you. Give me a sec. Is it, uh, <laughs> this is it's my, great. Can I share my screen with you? Yeah. Such a great okay. answer. This is my calendar this week. Okay. Um, Monday, I spent some time, my, my brother and his husband uh, and, their, and their daughter were in town. So I spent time driving to the airport and hanging out with them. Monday morning, I had a meeting at 3.30. Uh, I've got two of our podcast recordings and I've got a call with you and then one other call on Thursday and nothing else scheduled the entire week. Wow. Um, what is so, and it's funny because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very passionate about time management, about efficiency and very protective of my time. But where I think a lot of people make mistakes with like time management and efficiency processing and stuff like that is they try to add stuff to be able to do less. So they try to add in an app or lists or whatever it is to be able to do less. Um, It's actually subtraction, not addition that you need. And for me, um, this was really hard for a long time. I struggled with it a lot. I, the amount of times I've started like journaling and like doing all these, like, like I, one of my best friends like started the five minute journal and they built the productivity plan like, here. Yeah. So, so, so UJ and Alex started that. Like I've known oh. them for years, like, like UJ, Alex moved to Europe. Um, but UJ like is a good buddy of mine here in Toronto. And so like, you know, like they built the productivity planner, like, like I know these things, I know these processes. Right. And so they, it's, it's funny because I keep going back to it and like feeling like I need to do it. And I finally got to the point where I realized that for me, for the way that I work, it's not right. I need to accept the fact that I do very, very little. But when I do something, I tend to do it really well. And I tend to work really quickly, really efficiently, and at a really high quality. But I don't do very much. And for the vast majority of my day, I sit in space and I feel terrible about myself. Sorry for and I've kind of just accepted that that's my existential crisis and that's what my life is. And I'm either going to be like really happy and like satisfied at the end of the day, or I'm just going to be a disgruntled author in the basement drinking bourbon. And like, it's going to be one or the other. 
And so I, what I have kind of settled on now is this mantra of do less, but better. I need to be so dialed in on why I'm doing anything that I'm doing, knowing that I'm not going to do that much of it. And knowing that I'm not going to do that much. I mean, you look at like quick coach, you look at our marketing there. There's been basically no marketing. I produced one video, mm-hmm. but that one video was really good. Isn't it? Yes. That one video took a month to produce. And I think this is what is missed. Even on Instagram, um, I haven't written or produced any new content for three weeks. It's all been reposts. Mm-hmm. Now I spin it different ways. I yeah. give it a new hook, but it's all been different. It's all been reposts. And the reason for that is if I'm going to produce something there, I do it really, really well. And then I'm perfectly fine with using it and getting more out of it. Whereas what we used to do was we used to just try to produce so much mm-hmm. and we got so little out of it. I ran this website called the ptdc.com which was at its peak, had about 6 million unique visitors a year for personal trainers. And um, we had, it would cost for a single blog post anywhere from five to $7,000. Um, it touched seven different people to publish this blog post from researchers to editors, to editorial staff, to designers um, and everything and, 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 and anything. And we put it out. And we post about it once on social media mm. and then we move to the next. And I was like, how stupid is this? <laughs> the amount of money and time it's taking to produce this thing and how little we're getting out of it. And then we just move like, we would like celebrate if 5,000 people saw an article on the website. You'd be like, oh yeah, that was a win. Mm. Like I have an Instagram post from last week that's closing in on 6 million views. Wow. Like it's, and, and this is one person, zero dollars. Mm-hmm. I wrote it on Twitter. Yeah. I screenshotted it. I formatted it on Canva myself with like my fingers, like dragging the thing. And I posted it on Instagram. Love it. And so it's just one of those, like, what are we doing? I think, I think often what's plaguing what used to plague me, what still plagues me a little bit, what plagues a lot of people from folks I've spoken to is this focus on solutions without first assessing the problem. Mm-hmm. It's, solutions are really easy to come by if we deeply understand the problem. Mm-hmm. They're actually really obvious most of the time. Yeah. But we, we, we seem to we seem to make a leap to a solution before we understand what problem we're actually solving. Mm-hmm. And then we're never sure of the solution. So we never do it that much. Um, and it's scattershot. There's no real focus on it. Um, so I'm trying to take a lot more time understanding problems. Mm-hmm. And I have found that um, it's much easier to just put together a really quick, <laughs> like the solutions are obvious, right? It's like, well, okay, well, I need to get, um, I, I need people who can afford my training. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if people say that. They say, I need to get clients. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you need to be able to charge $500 a month. 
because you are a working mom with two kids with very little time and you mm. want to be offering the service where you're actually on the phone with people your hourly rate needs to be in order for you to make the amount of money you need to support your family your hourly rate needs to be say 150 dollars an hour mm -hmm. and you only have 15 hours a week to work these are the calculations you need to make which means that if i'm going to offer these services to my client Here's how many hours it's going to take me to deliver the service to the client. My hourly rate needs to be $150. I need to charge $500 a month per client. This is not, I want to, I don't want to. This is fair. This is not fair. This is the objective reality of your situation, mm -hmm. which means you can make choices. You can figure out how to work more. You can figure out how to offer less to a client and still get them results. Or you can figure out how to find clients who are going to be able to pay you that. It's just, that's, it's not me saying this is how I like it. This, but that's like, that is the objective reality. You have all these trainers when you actually do the math, particularly working online, they're charging like $10 an hour when you break it down. Yeah. Yeah. But you took the time and the space to, and got rid of the white noise so that you could actually get really, really clear on that. And I, and I think that's, a, that's where the online world is, is sometimes people need like a guidebook as to how to, to block out that white noise and trust trust their own vision and, and voice um, yeah you know in, instead of uh, just absolutely copying other people following what's going on uh, is, is your you're creating your own <laughs> schedule that works <laughs> when, you, when you copy other people and then you look at the results of what happens you realize very quickly that the vast majority of people don't know what the hell they're doing yeah, um, yeah. Even people who have success often don't know why they had success or they had success one time because they got lucky. You have to assess the quality of the decision they made and not the outcome. This is mm -hmm. something we learned from poker. This is something we learned from investing. The, the, most successful, uh, the, the most successful investors are right about 60% of the time, which means the quite literal best decision makers in the planet are right six out of 10 times, mm -hmm. which if you invert that, the best decision makers in the planet, making the best decisions in the planet based off of the best information in the planet are wrong four mm -hmm. out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. The worst decision makers have a 10% chance of getting lucky mm -hmm. and hitting it because they have a 10%, a 10% chance still means one out of 10 times it's going to go well for you. Mm. A 60% chance still means four out of 10 times it's not going to go well. Yet we celebrate these obscure examples of people who make dumb fuck decisions if it goes right for them, not realizing that the next time that they do anything, it's not going to go right for them. Just because something worked for somebody doesn't mean they made a good decision. You can't judge somebody based off of the outcome unless that person has had multiple positive outcomes in multiple different scenarios. Agreed. You have to judge somebody based off of the quality of the decision they made, regardless of the outcome. You have to. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to keep in mind, again, taking an example from investing, because I think the parallels to like success are really interesting. This is why studying wealth management, aside from the fact that you need to understand how money works is really interesting. Do you want to know what one of the best performing stocks of all time was? Yes. You'll never guess. Monster energy drinks. 
Oh. Now, this isn't this isn't to say that it's the most profitable company. This isn't to say it's the biggest company, but it is one of the best performing stocks of all time, which means it's risen the most. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the crazy stat about it. 96% of the time, the stock traded below its all-time high, which means the one of the best performing financial assets of all time was moving backwards 96% of the time. But the 4% of the time it moved forward, it moved forward so much that it outdid all of the backwards yeah. movement. No matter what you do, the vast majority of your time, you are going to feel like you are moving backwards. Mm. That's just the reality. When we move forwards, we don't move forwards in little tiny steps. It's not progressive. Mm. It's quantum leaps. But you got to be okay with all of this kind of stuff flatlining or even going down or you feeling like you're a failure or you're feeling horrible about yourself or why am I doing this? That person's doing so well, whatever it is, all of those periods, because what's happening is if you study exponential curves, which is basically always how success happens, Mm -hmm. there's a long period where it feels like nothing is happening, but really there's a lot of stuff happening. Go to the gym and you work out really, really well, and you eat perfectly for one day, and you look in the mirror, Mm -hmm. nothing changes. You do it the next day, you go to the gym, you work out really, really hard, you eat perfectly. The next day you look in the mirror, nothing changes. But you do that for a year, you're gonna be a whole new person. And it's the exact same with business. You've gotta just live it out until you hit that inflection point. When you do, you're not even going to remember what it was like before. That's amazing. And that's actually just answering what my, my second last question for you was about stuff not going in a straight line. Because when I listened to your podcast about, you know, the difficulty that you'd had of laying off staff in 2021, you know, your wife had four miscarriages, she got cancer. I mean, my God. Yeah, it was a year. <laughs> wow. I was like, I had to pause it for a moment, to be honest. And then, but we don't we don't experience right. emotions. I mean, emotions are relative, right? We don't. I'm not. I'm not the person who says this. Like, look up Rollo May and and you know, psychology and the human dilemma and and a bunch of his books. And he he talks about it much more eloquently than I do. But emotions are relative. We only experience things in reference to something else. Mm-hmm. You can only experience true joy when you've experienced sadness. You can only experience love when you felt lost. Like mm-hmm. like it's it's true. The reason why I'm having so much fun now and so appreciative is because last year was absolute shit. Yeah, shit show. Like it was just, it was hard. It felt miserable. It felt like the walls were closing in. It felt like I couldn't breathe. I was suffocating. It felt impossible. Did you have support? I mean, sure. I do have a mentor. Time. I mean, there wasn't time to breathe. Mm. It was there was all this family stuff where there was the, I mean, the big C word is scary as all hell. Right. So I, we're trying to figure out whether this cancer my wife has is serious. We're not realizing why she's having all these miscarriages. The business is starting to lose money and none of our staff seemed to care because they were just getting their paychecks. 
And, and I'm sitting here and I'm saying, well, why are we spending 5,000 for this and 10,000 for this? And they're like, oh, we're trying to improve conversion. Like we need to 10 times our sales or we will be bankrupt in eight months. I don't give a shit whether we increase conversions on this page 0.5% right now. That's not going to solve our problem. And, and all of these things were happening. Were all, and I just needed to just basically stop. All of it. It was just mm-hmm. it was just space that I needed. Do you have a mentor helping you? No. Do you have a mentor? I, mean, I, have, I have friends who are mentors. Like I've got yeah. people who you know I'm fortunate that believe in me that I can give them a call and say, hey, can we can we have a chat? But beyond that, no. No, mm-hmm. I have um I do I did hire an executive coach, um, Bob. He was great. Just just for somebody to talk to when all this yeah, was going. Yeah. On. Yeah. Yeah. Because that um, must have been really a lot. Like to come through that is is commendable, but that's a lot on your own to hold. Yeah, but I'm better now because of it. Yeah, yeah, and and you're, wow, you're you're an absolute force to be reckoned with, um, in the industry. So for for fit pros who are who are maybe saying, well, I've got this, this, and this, and all these different things, it's like, yeah, yeah, so does everybody. Um, yeah. but we keep going, you know. And so and it'll make you be able to connect to your clients more because your clients have all that too. Yeah. Yeah. My last question is what are your predictions for the fitness and health industry in 2023? What do you see happening or changing? or coming three, not much. I think in the next three to five years, we're going to see um, a fair amount of disruption with artificial intelligence. I think there's going to be um, a, a pretty serious uh job displacement, I think that there's going to be a redefinition of the role of what it means to work in fitness. Mm-hmm. And I think that our educational bodies are not in any way, shape or pre- shape or way prepared to educate people appropriately for what they actually need to do. Um, yes. I think that um, I think that a lot of the stuff that people think defines themselves as a fitness or health professional is actually going to be quite useless, worthless information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just to give one example, the the value of a workout program basically nothing i mean in an artificial intelligence engine can build a better workout than 98 percent of personal trainers right now it's it's a series of if then statements now there's mastery in it don't get me wrong but i'm talking that's like the top one percent of the one percent of the one percent of the one percent beyond that computers can already do it better than you and it's because it's it's if then statements um it's you know if the client shows up with this give them that if they do this give them that here's the best way to progress right and so there's going to be a lot more centralization of things like programming and but but that's not to say that coaches aren't valuable coaches are actually going to be more valuable but the skills mm-hmm. coaches have is going to change radically the value of coaching the value of caring compassionate coaching mm-hmm. is going to be higher than ever and people are going to search for more coaches than they ever did um, but coaches' jobs are not to build workouts. Um, and okay. so there's going to be there's going to be a really large um, displacement. I think there's going to be a really large definition, redefinition mm-hmm. of uh, what it means to work in fitness. I also think um, that there's going to be um, centralization of services. This is going to be less in the like one-on-one instruction space, but in group exercise, in yoga, take yoga, for example, yeah. you have... You have all of these like yoga instructors, uh, call her like Betty, Betty the Granola, you know, who's in Oregon, who's in Bend, Oregon, who went to a yoga teacher training one time in Costa Rica for the weekend, who owns a little yoga studio in Bend, Oregon. Well, Betty's actually a pretty shit yoga instructor, but 
what Betty is great at is she's super inspirational. She's fantastic at building the community together. And her little studio is a beautiful place. Well, Betty should not be teaching yoga. Mm -hmm. What Betty should be is running the business that teaches the yoga, because then you have Josh. Now, Josh is a yoga guru, right? Josh has been going to these yoga, he did, he did months in Thailand, he did all of this kind of stuff, right? Josh is like a legend in the yoga space. He puts the best classes together, the best curriculums. He's amazing. Well, Josh is going to license his teaching to all the Bettys. And Betty is going to facilitate locally. Mm -hmm. I think that type of model is going to start happening because Josh is going to build up an influencer profile online because he is a true expert in what he does. People mm -hmm. are going to search for Josh, but they're going to need local services. Mm -hmm. And Josh is going to say, well, Betty is where you live. Go train with Betty. Yeah. Josh's class is going to be. I, I don't think that's going to happen next year, but I think these we're going to increasingly see models like that in the next three to five years. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, because I feel that trainers are going to need to work on, you know, social and emotional intelligence so much more than the, what you were what you were talking about, the programming. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's so interesting. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on yeah, to my sure. show. Absolute pleasure to talk with you. And Absolutely. if FitPros want to find you, uh, where would be the best place to to go? Come, come check me out on Instagram. It's at it's coach Goodman. Uh, Instagram is the best place. You can send me a message. I'll say hi. Uh, and if you're interested in the software, it's uh, www.quickcoach.fit. It's free. Sign up, check it out. Don't feel like you need to move everybody over there on day one. Don't put pressure on yourself. It's free. Just mm -hmm. check it out and play. And if it's right for you, use it. And for those that need help with mentoring, it's, it's OTA. It's your, your program. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. I'm not the, I, don't, I mean, yes, yes, it's the best program in the world for it, but I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of just, I don't know. I'm in a good place. I don't need to pitch stuff. No, but just, if you're looking, if you're looking for that. Yeah, it's there. OTA. It's there. Okay. okay. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. So check, check Jonathan's account up and, uh, and get downloading the software. Cool. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Jonathan as much as I did. And the part that stood out to me the most, I think, is that buttons change and humans don't. And so if there's any particular bit on this podcast that really resonates with you, please tag us on social media. It's Coach Goodman or Sarah, the Holistic Business Coach, because I always want to know what part of this inspires you on the podcast so that I know what else to bring you. Also, along with a really great sense of humor, Jonathan has something really rare that's often lacking in the fitness industry, and that is a big heart. And it really draws people to him, and he inspires so many personal trainers to be better, to do better. So do let him know if you've enjoyed this podcast.